Hey, it's Joey Thurman. I'm excited to bring you season two of the Fad or Future podcast. We live in a world where information is everywhere, easy to access, and sometimes not always accurate, especially in the health and wellness space, which is exactly why I created this show. There's two sides to every story, and I'm here to present both and let you decide, is it a fad or is it the future? Health fads come and go, but the science behind them is what makes them work or fail. I'm bringing the experts to you and putting the facts on the table so you can decide how and where to put your efforts in your own personal health and wellness journey. All right. Does anybody want to get smarter? I've got a podcast for you today. Andrew Humerman, PhD. Should I call you doctor? Uh, well, I would say I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I don't prescribe anything. I'm a professor and I profess lots of things. So if you wanted to call me professor, you could, but Andrew is fine. I'm, I'm rather informed. So. Uh, all right. That's good. Uh, so professor Andrew Huberman, you're a Stanford neuroscientist. Uh, I imagine you've got a lot up top on, on top of that head there, man. So tell me a little bit about what you do and you do all sorts of different research and I've been following you for quite some time. Uh, one of my buddies is a, um, you know, PhD as well. We do neurofeedback and all sorts of stuff. And I, I, I sent, uh, his, your stuff to him. He's like, yeah, this, this guy is, is legit. So I'm really excited to have you on and I, I truly appreciate it. So if you just, uh, tell everybody kind of, um, what, what it is you're all about. Um, well, first of all, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm a card carrying neuroscientist. What that means is I run a laboratory, um, and we work on two main sets of problems. Um, one set of problems is how to regenerate nerve cells, neurons after injury. So the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, neurons there do not regenerate. This is why people with severe spinal cord injuries often have a lot of trouble or fail to ever walk again or regain function after severe injury. It's also why people who have diseases like glaucoma and other retinal degenerative diseases lose vision and it doesn't come back. And so one of the main efforts that we're focused on is trying to figure out why central nervous system neurons don't regenerate and obviously how to get them to regenerate. So for that, we run studies looking at genetics and molecular and cell biology. Uh, we use viruses and this kind of thing to try and understand degeneration and regeneration. And we also run clinical trials in humans. So right now I'm running a clinical trial looking at how electrical stimulation of the eye using virtual reality can be used to enhance regeneration. We don't have the results back of that trial yet, but yeah. um, we're very excited um, by where that might lead. The other half of my lab is interested in, let's just call them brain states. So we study stress. We try and figure out like what, where in the brain does stress arise? How can we learn to navigate stress better? We also study states of mind that allow us to focus, states of mind that allow neural plasticity, which is the brain's ability to change in response to experience. And again, there we do studies in mice trying to identify the brain areas and mechanisms that might be involved. And then we do a lot of work in humans using virtual reality. We actually record directly from the human brain in neurosurgery patients. Um, so they have electrodes lowered into the fear centers and other areas of the brain. That's yeah. obviously done in partnership with neurosurgery. And so that's my lab. And you know, our, the goal of my lab is to make discoveries that allow us to better understand those processes and develop new treatments. I have a 
kind of uh, adjacent life. I consult for a number of different groups, um, military special operations. I do a little bit of work with some athletes and um, some work in the general, you know, population trying to adopt some of the best of what we know about how to control our inner states to apply it to business, sport, or military. And then the third kind of uh, wing of my life, uh, professional life, that is, is public education. So I'm out there on Instagram, just teaching neuroscience, um, sharing what I've, what I've learned and what I think um, people might find informative and useful on podcasts like these. Yeah. And that is motivated by the fact that, you know, the American taxpayers pay for the research that we do. You know, most of it, some of it comes from foundation support or philanthropic support, mm-hmm. but you know, and, and I'm of the mind that if that knowledge stays vaulted in laboratories and papers, it's, uh, it's doing a lot less good than it could if it were out in, in the community. So I enjoy teaching and sharing neuroscience and of course, learning what other people are up to as well. Yeah. And, and that's how, I don't know if uh, you found me or I found you or vice, how, how that worked, but I found you on Instagram and I, and I started looking at all this stuff and at pre-social media, we didn't have access to all these research papers. And, and really, even if you had access to a research paper, the general individual couldn't understand it. So you do a good job of breaking things down in layman's terms and you're, and you're not getting too scientific with it. So uh, it's really interesting to watch that. And you're at Huberman Lab, right? Is that your, uh, your Instagram? That's right. Yeah, and I think I actually reached out to you first. I think maybe I saw something with David Sinclair and I, yeah. I, I think I, I was enthusiastic about the fact that you guys are in conversation. You know, I really have to tip my hat to David. You know, we're in very different areas of science, although there's some overlap. He's, in, he's doing really important work on visual repair also. Yeah. But we're in different areas of science, but, you know, very few scientists are sticking their neck out there and, um, and doing public education. And David was, you know, one of the first people to start doing that while also running a, a very, you know, intense high caliber lab at a major university. And, um, and so I think what he's doing is wonderful. Uh, I've, I'm trying to jump in the mix there and there are others such in Panda and I'm trying to re- recruit some of the scientists that are better at communicating. Scientists don't get trained to do that. So it's <laughs> yeah. a certain kind of individual that, that wants to do that. And, you know, we, we still have our day jobs, you know, uh, so we, we get busy with those sorts of things, but education is very important. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, normally when you think scientists, you think lab coat and, you know, Maybe guys like overweight and balding and, you know, from, from you chest up, man, you look like you're in shape, but <laughs> most, sci- most scientists, uh, I mean, anybody listening, we're on zoom right now. So that's all I can see right now. Uh, you know, I think most scientists, they're, they're trained just to report the data. And then by you, not even necessarily giving your opinion, but putting it out there and then think the same thing about David Sinclair. If anybody wants to um, check out David Sinclair's podcast, it's back in season one. But um, so giving your opinion and being out there leads yourself to criticism. So have you gotten, gotten that from colleagues or anybody else saying, I mean, this guy, you know, he's, he's looking at the data wrong or do you, do you have that at all? Because most people, most scientists aren't out there. So um, I, well, let let me put it this way. If they're thinking that, and there probably are a few people that are um, wondering why I'm doing so much public, education these days. Mm-hmm. If they're thinking that, um, they're not saying it <laughs> um, directly to me, you know, um, yeah. and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but sure. you know, science has been, the, the, the field of science has been very good to me. And yeah. you know, I, I grew up in this thing. I mean, I, I decided I was going to be a neuroscientist when I was 
19, I threw myself into laboratories. My grad, undergraduate, graduate, and postdoc mentors were like parents to me. Um, I, you know, and this is not me rattling off uh, points on my Vita for sake of, of ego. It's really to just answer your question better. Uh, you know, I'm on a, I'm a standing member on a panel from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, we evaluate grants. I review for a lot of academic journals. Um, so maybe they're not um, being critical to my face because they're worried that I'm going <laughs> to reject their papers or grants, which I would never do, right? One thing has nothing to do with the other. Hey, but that's, that's fair, man. That, that, that's human but, behavior. That is fair. But, it's, but I like to think that they, they appreciate and maybe even applaud what I'm doing. So there are a couple people, I won't name names, but sure. there's a program officer at the National Institutes of Health who, um, what, who follows carefully what I do and has been very supportive. I've got um, close contacts at the major scientific journals, in particular Cell Press and some of the nature journals that have been, um, at least verbally to me, have been, they, they said it's great, you know, and they, because when people publish a paper, so let's say this week a paper comes out about, let's say Alzheimer's, an important discovery in Alzheimer's. Yeah. The news might pick up on that press release and they might put a little article and it's always the same thing. It's like, this work was done in mice and you know, people are, they're cautiously optimistic about what might happen in 10 years. They've been saying that 10 years thing for the last 30 years. <laughs> right. so, so, so there's an important gap that needs to be filled where people that are very scientifically literate or people like me who don't work on Alzheimer's can pick up the phone and call one of the authors of those papers, or maybe I know them already, yeah. and get the download about what those people are doing for themselves, even if the stuff hasn't already moved through FDA trials, or whether or not they're cautiously optimistic or more pessimistic. I can extract a lot of useful information that then I, I like to think I can translate for the general public. Yeah. You know, I always have to be careful that I'm not suggesting practices that are taking huge leaps. So I like to see two or three papers published in a particular area that support uh, uh, an idea of a practice. We'll talk about some of those today, I imagine. Mm -hmm. yep. And when you see two or three papers, then you start to say, oh, there's the kind of center of mass around something. So the short answer is I, I've been very supported. Yeah. I sort of, um, and Stanford in particular has been wonderful. Stanford has, and Stanford Med, because I'm on the medical school side, has a social media pages. They've reposted some things I've put up during COVID in particular at the mm -hmm. onset of COVID. They were very encouraging and supportive in helping spread some of the information from my lab about stress mitigation. Mm -hmm. And, and this was never really advertised, but a, a group at Harvard in the molecular and cellular developmental biology department reached out to me and some, and one of my collaborators from, former military special operations. We, we were giving talks to some of the leadership there about how to navigate stress in groups and in teams by combining science and by combining some of the lessons learned from military. So the academic community has found itself to be very, um, you know, in the same position everyone else is right now. It's not like the people researching COVID aren't worried about COVID. They, right. If anything, they're probably more stressed yeah. <laughs> because they have all the inside right. ball. Right. So the, the bottom line is I've felt great support um, as I, of course, have to maintain my grants and my scientific duties, and that's a, a big time um, balance issue for me. But um, I would say that people have been very supportive. The other thing is, I don't have a company. Um, you know, I am working on a book that will be out next year sometime. Um, but I'm, I'm not out there promoting a product. Yeah. So I'm, I'm translating information. And I would hope that if I got anything wrong, or that if I, um, put something in a context that people didn't feel comfortable with, that they would talk to me about it. Scientists are used to telling each other that we're wrong all the time. That's basically yeah. what we do for a living. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, that I've, I've felt great about it. And I will just finish by saying this. Um, I have, I've had wonderful mentors, but unfortunately all three of my scientific mentors died very young of unfortunate causes. And so I'm almost 45 years old. I learned by watching that example. You can't wait. If you think that the science you're doing or the message that you want to bring to the world should, that you should wait to bring that to the world. Um, you don't know when that bus is coming. You don't know when the reapers coming. And I don't want to, I don't have a dark outlook on life, but yeah. I've seen just how quickly that bus can hit. And there's no last year of writing your book. You're going to do it in your last year or getting out there on social media. So I just, when my third mentor in a row died young, I just decided, you know what, that's it. I'm going to start doing what I believe should be done here. And I'm going to do it in the most rigorous and ethical way that I'm that possible, yeah. but I'm not going to pull back because I'm worried about what people might be saying behind my back. Also, if they want to talk to me to my face, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to have a friendly uh, conversation about it. You know, I'm not scared of many people. Um, certainly the people I'm afraid of, most of them uh, are not scientists, but they're uh, so, you know, bring it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, we're, we're gonna have a scientific battle 101. Uh, uh, a scientist, we, we argue with words, we, you know, and, and there's some very smart people that will that will point out your flaws if you're not um, on your game. So yeah. it's, it's good to have that sense that you have to be careful. Yeah, that's fair. And I think that's good advice for anybody. You it, people will say, uh, uh, if this happens, then my life's going to be better and waiting for things. And I, and I read a book years ago. I don't remember the author, but it was ready, ready, fire, aim. And basically the whole premise is everybody waits until the perfect, their website's perfect, their life's perfect, their finances are perfect. And sometimes you just need to fire and then aim where you're going after that. So, um, I think that makes a lot of sense and that's, that's good life advice, whether you're you know, looking at the brain or you're just trying to look at it for business advice. All right. So I got uh, some protocol sent to me from you. So I'll, I'll touch on it real quick. So breathing routine, sleep routine, and visual tactics, tactics and brain optimization. So I, I want to talk about, and as part of this podcast, I try to do everything. And obviously, you know, with COVID, I can't do it, uh, anything in person, but this, these were things that I was able to do. So breathing routine and calm, calming the central nervous system, uh, you have to do double in, inhalations through the nose and an extended exhale, especially when working out two to three cycles, uh, repeated one to three times between sets will help with heart rate variability. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and one, I did it and, and it actually does work because I'm in fitness and nutrition and I, I, I would like to think that I know how to breathe, but we were very shallow breathers and being conscious of this in between sets and working out or sprints uh, really did help bring this sense of calm and recovery to me. Yeah. So um, my lab's been focusing on how respiration impacts states of mind. And, um, and when we say states of mind, I mean the brain, right? Mm -hmm. I use brain and mind mostly interchangeably. Um, in fact, there's a study that we're doing right now. We meaning me and a guy named David Spiegel, who's in our department of psychiatry, he's a professor and MD there looking at how different patterns of breathing impact brain states. Why breathing? Well, the diaphragm, which is a skeletal muscle, unlike other organs, it's skeletal muscle, just like a bicep or quadricep, can work involuntarily. You're breathing all day. You're probably not thinking about it most of the time and while you sleep, but you can take conscious control over that diaphragm through a nerve pathway called the phrenic nerve, P-H-R-E-N-I-C, phrenic. Hmm. How fast that diaphragm moves signals to your brain how alert your brain needs to be. So it's kind of, you know, we don't really think about this, but 
your brain needs to know how, how alert or how sleepy to be depending on the, the movement of your body. Well, how does it get that information? It's not yeah. feedback from the muscles. It's not lactic acid in your system because most of the time you're not generating a lot of lactic acid just walking around. Yeah. When you're breathing fast, the diaphragm is sending more signals and when you're breathing slowly, it's sending fewer signals per unit time and you get more alert or calm depending on whether or not it's more signals or fewer signals. The double inhale, ideally both inhales through the nose followed by an exhale, is a particularly important pattern of breathing for people to know about and to adopt. They are called physiological size. The discovery of these physiological size dates back to the 30s. And in recent years, it's been discovered that there's a set of neurons that in the brainstem, they're specifically responsible for generating physiological size. Believe it or not, everybody does these periodically throughout sleep. And under conditions where carbon dioxide in our system gets too high, people will spontaneously use this physiological sigh. Why? Well, when you do that double inhale, you, it's like taking a deep breath. So people say, you're stressed, take a deep breath. Well, you take yep. a deep breath, but then that second little inhale at the end where you sneak in just the tiniest amount of extra air fully expands these little sacs in the lungs, which then when you exhale pulls an additional amount of carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream. So you offload more carbon dioxide, which brings you to a level of calm very quickly. Put into plain English, double inhale followed by exhale is the fastest way to calm your brain and nervous system. We have to remember that the mind is the nervous system and it's talking to the body all the time. And the body is talking to the, the brain all the time through these nerve pathways. So when if you look at breath work or you look at yoga or you look at all this kind of stuff around breathing, that's yeah. all wonderful. Wim Hof breathing, Tumo breathing, uh, Patrick McEwen stuff, Brian McKenzie's doing fabulous work, the Laird and Gabby, you know, Laird Hamilton, Gabby Reese, wonderful stuff with breath work. But my lab was really interested in what's, what are the tools we can use in real time to offset stress? Yeah. Because it's, and so there are two reasons to do this kind of breathing. The double inhale, exhale, you can intersperse between sets. You can do it during a conversation. You can do it while driving home. You can do it while getting a troubling text. You can do it anytime you're feeling like your level of alertness is too high. Now, and you want to bring your level of, of calm up and your level of alertness down. Yep. Now, why would you want to do that in a workout? Well, heart rate variability we know is good. And toggling between states that are very high intensity and lower what so-called parasympathetic states throughout the day is good. Meaning being stressed, being relaxed, being stressed, being relaxed. We think of stress as bad, but it, chronically high stress is bad. Right. So right. I said, when uh, you wrote and said, you know, what's a practice to adopt? I wanted to make it very concrete. And since you're a guy that has regular, does regular workouts, big part of your life, we know that your ability to focus in a set and to generate energy and effort is proportional to how much you've managed to rest and achieve deep states of relaxation between sets. Sometimes we call that sleep between workouts, right? Yeah. If you ever had a workout after a bad night's sleep, it's very different than after an, an awesome night's sleep, yeah, night and day. Yeah. Well, on a more micro scale, if you can bring your nervous system into states of deep relaxation between sets or quick, quicker, re deeper relaxation, you don't want to fall asleep, obviously. You're going to be able to generate more focus and intensity in the subsequent set. So I, I have a practice of, that's based on these physiological size of bringing, of making, after I'll set down the weight or finish the, the interval, the first thing I'll do, I actually consider it part of the set just to remind myself to do it. I'll mm -hmm. do one or three physiological size. And so you're generating a lot of heart rate variability by 
employing these neurons in the nervous system that were designed to quickly calm you. And this is also because controlling the mind with the mind is very hard. If you finish a set or you're stressed, it doesn't matter if it's a joyful thing, like because you enjoy working out or you're stressed from a life event and you, and you tell yourself to calm down, you can't just tell yourself, I mean, you can tell yourself, but it doesn't work. You need to employ the body. You need to employ physiology. And the last thing I'll say about breathing is that there are other breathing practices that involve sitting for five minutes or 10 minutes and doing a specific pattern of breathing, so-called breath work. And those have a utility too. Box breathing, Tumo breathing. We can talk about any and all of those if you want. Yeah. But I think it's nice that people have in their kit a tool that works the first time works every time and was designed for the purpose of calming us. You know, I didn't invent this tool. Mother nature mm -hmm. holds the patent for this. It probably dates back hundreds of thousands of years. Sure. Everyone has these neurons and uses them spontaneously from time to time, but they can be employed voluntarily. And so that's why I suggested it. Yeah. And, and that makes a ton of sense. Anybody listening, heart variability is just basically a measure of how well we're recovering and how well your body is recovered. So if you don't get a lot of sleep or we're chronically stressed, uh, as Andrew said, that our, our, our body is just at an elevated level. We have elevated levels of cortisol and stress isn't a bad thing. Working out naturally is a stressful response, but being able to reel that back by taking these deep <laughs> and that double inhalation and exhalation really does just give you a sense of going between, um, you know, parasympathetic and sympathetic, you know, sympathetic when we're working out. So that fire flight or, you know, rest and digest. So that did really help me. I was doing this when I was doing sprints and I was only doing 10 second sprints, which you can't really sprint any, any, any longer than that for anybody listening. You can't run as fast as you can for 30 seconds. Usain Bolt only runs for like nine seconds and the dude's coasting halfway through. Uh, so this was really interesting to do because most of the time, yeah, I would do like box breathing afterwards or I'd lay on my back or just, you know, kind of try to do different things. But this was something that I could see that, as you mentioned, when people get stressed, especially in 2020, it's been a hell of a year. As my wife and I like to say, I don't know what level of Jumanji we're in each time between COVID and everything else and murder hornets or whatever else going on. We just enter these other levels. So uh, I think that this would be a good thing for people just to incorporate you know, throughout the day as well when they're getting stressed. So uh, that makes a lot of sense and it's nice tangible information that people can do. Now, besides that, you also... Another thing that I practiced that I started getting into was a lot of meditation, but you sent me uh, just basically uh, yoga nidra and where it's 10 minutes mm -hmm. and I just turn on this YouTube link and uh, anybody listening, I'll put it on the uh, show notes. So could you tell me why you sent me the yoga nidra to do? Yeah. So there are a couple practices that are grounded again in um, kind of laying back to our earlier conversation about uh, rigor that are grounded in the publications of three or four or more very high quality peer reviewed papers. Mm -hmm. And the physiological size have support from a number of papers over decades. The, the practice of yoga nidra has support from a couple studies of, so first of all, yoga nidra is, is it literally means yoga sleep. You lie down, you just listen to a script. I started um, developing an interest in this because I'm also interested in hypnosis, medical oh. hypnosis. Um, my colleague, David Spiegel, um, is, kind of, is the world expert on medical hypnosis for pain management, trauma, et cetera, smoking cessation. Hmm. This is serious brain science. It's not, again, stage hypnosis. Hypnosis involves um, some deep relaxation, narrowing of context, this kind of thing. It's a little bit like meditation, but it requires a, a script or somebody to guide you through it. 
meditation, you know, I kept hearing about all the value of meditation. I've been doing meditation for a long time, but meditation is something that very few people maintain over a long period of time. And it's hard to know if you're doing it right. Yep. And it, the effects tend to be rather gradual as a consequence. Yoga Nidra was developed, you know, over thousands of years as a practice that where you just lie down and you do some exhale emphasized breathing. So it tends to promote these parasympathetic or more relaxed states, but you maintain a, a low level of attention, kind of a body scan type thing. Sometimes people fall asleep, but, um, and I occasionally fall asleep doing Yoga Nidra, but it's very interesting because the science of Yoga Nidra is there isn't a ton of it, but there are a couple papers. And let me just, exp there's one in particular that was published by a group in Denmark that shows that 10 to 30 minutes of this, yoga nidra practice restores levels of dopamine in an area of the brain called the basal ganglia, which are involved in motor planning and execution of motor movements. Mm -hmm. So it replenishes this circuitry of the brain, allowing people to be uh, more efficient in action afterwards. So it's su pseudo sleep. It kind of mimics sleep. Now my lab decided to take the yoga nidra protocol, strip away all the fancy naming and new agey stuff, and just focus on what's happening with respiration right? Just strip it away to the physiology. Yeah. And what we found is that people doing this go into states that are very deep rest and it can affect in a positive way performance on a cognitive task and stress and how one manages stress immediately after coming out of the yoga nidra. Now, or this yoga nidra-like protocol. Now, the, the other rationale here is a lot of people have trouble sleeping. A lot of people have chronic stress. A lot of people's nervous system is just snapped on to a state of high alertness for too, too much of the day, yeah. too much of the week. And 2020 is a particularly challenging year for a lot of people. A lot of people are experiencing this. And so one of the motivations here is, you know, teaching people or allowing people to teach themselves how to calm their nervous system quickly. If you don't know how to calm your nervous system, it's going to be very hard to fall and stay asleep, how to turn off your thoughts. Like I said earlier, it's hard to control the mind with the mind. So you can't just say, I need to fall asleep. Anyone who's had trouble falling asleep, you know how maddening that is. Yeah. So yoga nidra has a number of effects. One, it replenishes some of these chemicals in the brain that are useful for putting us back into action when we come out of yoga nidra. The other is it can have sleep-like effects. I respectfully disagree with some of the people in the sleep community that said, that you can't recover lost sleep. That might be true from the perspective of slow wave sleep and REM sleep. Yeah. But if you look at performance on cognitive tasks, and I'm doing some of this work with military groups, you can greatly enhance your ability to perform by entering a state of deep relaxation each day that isn't sleep. Hmm. And so I think people can get a lot out of having a protocol that they do maybe first thing in the morning when they wake up if they didn't get enough sleep. That's one time to do yoga nidra. The other is each day in the afternoon, if you're feeling kind of a drop in energy, you use that as a period of time for deliberate decompression, really uh, you know, bring your brain and body into states of deep relaxation so then you can lean back into life in a more focused way later. And then also people who do yoga nidra regularly find, this is more anecdotal, but they find that they have an easier time falling and staying asleep and achieving deep sleep states. Hmm. So I love this practice because like physiological size, it makes sense. You're teaching your nervous system how to relax in a deliberate way. And there's, you know, so much good support for why sleep is important. And we're all told, oh, you don't sleep, you're going to get dementia. Oh, you don't sleep, you're going to, all these terrible things are going to happen. Testosterone is going to crash. Fertility is going to crash. But what we're not being told is how to get better at sleeping. 
and, and sleep and, and sleep involves falling asleep. That's one step staying uh -huh. asleep. Right. And then accessing sleep. That's really deep and powerfully restorative. So we're now everyone knows they need to be sleeping. I think the message is clear, yeah. but one, I'm trying to give people tools that can get them better at sleeping. And the tools that I'm referring to are, you know, cost free uh, as long as you can access YouTube. You're okay. There are a few apps out there that are good too. Yeah. Um, but YouTube offers these scripts and so they're free, free of charge. Yeah. I mean, this, this one was easy. I did it this morning laying down. I've done it in the afternoon and, and for me, people are like, Oh, you need to meditate. And it's hard for me to think like, Oh, thinking about my toes and what's, what's happening. I just, I just get lost. Something shiny goes to the right. And I'm like, oh, I'm looking at that. Just my, my brain's always going. So for this, it, it was really interesting just following this guy's voice, just calming voice. I don't know, like sounds or waves, whatever. So yeah, that, that was well, really interesting. I'll just say one thing about the distraction, what you call distraction. Um, when people tell me they have a hard time meditating, um, I know some people from uh, communities that do work that's very like high risk, high consequence. And they some of them don't like meditation either. Some do. Um, we call that high situational awareness. Your ability to, to know what's going on in your environment is actually an asset. And so I think a lot of people- So you're saying I'm a, a genius, right? I'm a genius. And, well, what I'm saying is that I think, I think people punish themselves unnecessarily these days. They're like, oh, I have ADD. Well, no, maybe you're just training yourself to be distracted by you know, looking at your device between every meeting and every moment. Yeah. Um, maybe people say, oh, you know, I- I can't relax. I can't meditate. And they feel like there's something wrong with them. Well, maybe you have high situational awareness. Maybe you're, you know, which is it, which is an asset. So I think that the key is that I think some people have higher situational awareness. Some people have lower situational awareness. And what you really want is to be able to toggle back and forth between those two states. And so yoga nidra uh, and things like it, um, deep relaxation protocols, they are a way of you teaching your nervous system how to kind of ragdoll. I call yeah. it like, you know, for, for, and then being able to snap back into that high situational awareness. And it's a skill, but I, I just, I mentioned that because I think a lot of people, they, they criticize themselves for not being able to relax. And it's just, well, let's look at what their nervous system is really good at doing. Yeah. And you want to balance those out, but there's no, no reason to be critical of oneself for not being able to achieve these deep states of mindfulness that supposedly are going to allow us to transcend all these things. And I'm not being critical of meditation, sure. but, but let's face it the opposite of mindfulness is mindlessness and both are very hard to measure. Yeah. So I like the breathing stuff yeah. because you can measure carbon dioxide. And that's what we do in the lab. We're measuring physiology. Yeah. So I, I know that a, a lot of people are, we're a nation that we just like, we want to pop pills or anything. So yes, relaxing and, you know, um, trying to do this, uh, you know, Nidra like 10 minutes a day or before bed or in the morning to kind of, recharge yourself, if you will. Now, I know you're not a big supplement guy, but is there anything that people can take, you know, that could just get them just maybe calm down a little bit more or sleep better at night? Sure. So um, I've got some friends that are going to give me a hard time if I don't uh, say one thing. So I actually, I take a lot of supplements personally. Uh -huh. I've been interested in supplements since I was in my teens. Um, I think they're really interesting. interesting. Um, obviously you need to embrace them if you choose to with, with, a, you know, with some skepticism about most and some caution. Right. Yeah. So again, I'm not a doctor. I don't prescribe anything. And I want to just say that anything I'll talk about with supplements, I want to put a box around that and just make it clear that that's not related to the work that my lab does. Right. Right. This, um, information that I think I'm in a good position to 
a vet based on experience and the ability to read papers and scientific data, but um, I want to put a box around that. The other thing I want to do is I want to make sure everyone has access to a resource that I wish I had invented <clears throat> called examine.com. This is a beautiful website, a not-for-profit website created by some guy, some kid actually, <laughs> um, where you can put in any supplement and it takes you to what's called the human effect matrix. The human effect matrix is a link to, it shows all the different effects of a given supplement. So let's say you put in magnesium. Yeah. It will show you the number of arrows up or down for the effects on blood pressure, sleep, um, uh, exercise performance, et cetera. But it will also show you where the study was done. Was it in postmenopausal women? Was it done in rats? Uh, were those rats, um, you know, a genetic mutant of a demented rat? Was it, you know, so you have links to all that stuff and they're not selling anything there, which yeah. is wonderful. So um, I've never met this kid, but I, I, I adore what him and what he did because this yeah. is such a, a resource and everyone should know about it who's thinking about supplementation. Okay. Now, it also has some safety warnings and things uh, there. Now, I, I take a lot of supplements, and, but I'll always say your first line of attack on anything you want to switch, especially with the nervous system, should be behaviors first. Mm -hmm. Do your yoga nidra, do your physiological size, do your things to try. Now, if you're still having issues, then you know I would say you want to look to behaviors. Then nutrition is obviously very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't. Um, so, for instance, if people are having trouble sleeping, one simple thing. This isn't glamorous neuroscience, but there's actually a nerve connection from the bladder to the brainstem that will wake you up when your bladder reaches a certain level of full. Literally, this is why in the middle of the night people get up yeah. to urinate. That pathway is not developed in young kids, which is why they pee their bed. It develops late huh. compared to other neural circuits. But one, what does that tell us? Well, hydration is very important, but don't drink too many fluids as you approach nighttime. I mean, taper your fluid intake off. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to be waking up in the middle of the night. So a lot of people are like, I'm waking up in the middle of the night. Well, that, you know, you don't want to dehydrate yourself, but there's just kind of a basic logic there that's based on a neural pathway. So yeah. bladder full, everyone knows how stressful it is when your bladder's really, really full and you have to use the bathroom. There's almost <laughs> nothing more stressful than that. Your heart rate's going, you're like, uh -huh. your eyes are looking for restrooms. It's- I'm going to piss my pants, oh man. Exactly. And, and yeah. you know, so, you know, it's, it sounds like kind of a silly example, but it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, so sure. now if you're handling your behaviors, you're watching your caffeine intake late in the day, you're you're doing all the right things. Keep in mind that there are three supplements in particular that can be very powerful for falling and staying asleep. The one I don't recommend is melatonin. First of all, melatonin is a hormone that we all naturally produce in our pineal gland that helps us fall asleep, but it doesn't help keep us asleep. The levels of melatonin that are being sold over the counter are super physiological. I mean, it's crazy if you think about it, you can go buy a hormone like melatonin. I mean, if, if you, I mean, this is like the equivalent of being able to go buy like testosterone or estrogen and, be like, and people popping it, which right. obviously is illegal. Yeah. Those are prescription drugs. But melatonin is a hormone whose main job during puberty is to, excuse me, is to suppress puberty early in development. So melatonin when it's tonically high suppresses puberty. So melatonin has dramatic effects on all sorts of other hormone systems. I don't think people should be taking melatonin. Yeah. Now I get into arguments with a few physicians about this who say, well, once in a while, or, you know, this and that, but if you really push them, they'll say, yeah, it's probably not great to be taking this chronically. So the three supplements that I've found very good success with that I think the safety margins for are very high. Although again, you have to, 
check with your doctor. Magnesium threonate, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E. 300 to 400 milligrams of magnesium threonate. Theanine, T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. 100 to 400 milligrams. 400 is getting kind of high, but um, theanine and magnesium threonate tend to suppress levels of GABA in the, uh, excuse me, I will correct myself, increase levels of GABA in the forebrain, which suppresses our thinking and allows us to fall asleep. It kind of turns off our thinking. Incidentally, a couple drinks with alcohol in them also turn off the forebrain through the same mechanism. Yeah, I've had that happen a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, Theanine is now showing up in a lot of energy drinks because it takes away jitters. And the energy drink companies have figured out that they can put a lot more caffeine and stimulants in. And if they put theanine in, it's giving people this like really focused alert state, but without the jitters, that's getting into some pretty ambitious pharmacology. I don't rec- you know, I'm not a big yeah. fan of energy drinks. Most uh, have a lot of uh, stuff that can have bad effects on vasodilation and, and um, microcapillaries. We could talk about that as well, but there's a third supplement that's quite useful for sleep. And that's apigenin, A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N, which is a derivative of chamomile. Those three things, magnesium, threonate, apigenin, and theanine, in a combination help can be very helpful in falling and staying asleep and maximizing slow wave sleep, which is the really deeply restorative sleep. Now, just a little warning, apigenin is a pretty potent estrogen inhibitor, which for men can be good. For women, often can be bad. So just be aware of that. I don't recommend women take it. Um, men, you know, you have to, if you're, you, men need estrogen too, but in general, there's a larger range in which they can, you know, push down estrogen uh, safely. Now, the, the other thing is that if you have very intense dreams or you're a sleepwalker, you should avoid theanine. It can lead to kind of robust dreams, very vivid dreams. So some people need to back off on the theanine to like a hundred milligrams, but that cocktail has been very useful to me and to, uh, I would say, you know, a couple hundred people that now, you know, have, I've gotten feedback from for taking that. I don't have a supplement company, so, um, I won't, I can't recommend brands because they would imply an affiliation, but I will say this. Um, I think they're all more or less equivalent if you get them from any kind of reliable source. I don't, I would shop for price and unfortunately they're reasonably priced. Um, and, and then I think, you know, we said behaviors, nutrition supplements, mm-hmm. and then there, of course there are prescription drugs like Ambien and things like that, that will work. Um, but I would, my preference for myself is to look towards things that are non-prescription and safe and work up the ladder that way and really find the sweet spot. And those have radically transformed my relationship to sleep. I fall asleep very easily. Yeah. I achieve deep sleep and my sleep is very restorative. And um, I've take, I take vacations from those supplements every couple of days or a week or so. I'll maybe take a day or two off just to make sure I'm not dependent on them. Yeah. And I'm fine. What, how, what was your experience with them? Yeah, no, I, 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 the one that I haven't taken is the, the apigenin, but the, the theanine and the magnesium. I mean, magnesium in general helps with muscle relaxation. So that makes a lot of sense there. But I slept quite well. Um, but the, the apigen, I didn't realize that had a estrogen blocking effect, which for me, you know, I've taken HCG and stuff like that to try to regulate my testosterone levels. And I don't want to take testosterone now because we've got one kid. I don't know if we're going to have more. So I don't want to obviously take that. So, uh, but in doing so, you know, when I found when I was doing the HCG and stuff, I was actually 
you know, having a little bit of issue with that. So I stopped doing it, but the epigenin, I'm just trying to think like, Ooh, I could biohack myself this way, but well, no, it, it, it I, I felt good. Yeah. I felt good. Yeah. I mean, we, we could um, maybe go down that rabbit hole yeah. some other time if you like, but you know, HCG is a luteinizing hormone mimic. So it will stimulate testosterone. And if you have any amount of aromatase in your system, it'll convert to estrogen. Yep. This is a, a sort of hobby of interest of mine, not because I'm an athlete or interested in performance enhancing um, regimes, but uh, I did my master's uh, in neuroendocrine um, interactions. And I, I maintain a deep interest in neuroendocrine interactions. And so um, I'll just say this, maybe something for another podcast. Uh, yeah. there, there's, a, there are very there's a very interesting set of supplements that are alkaloids that stimulate LH directly as opposed to mimicking LH. Because if you take HCG, LH is going to drop, yeah. which, is, which is not necessarily bad, but stimulating LH. But then, of course, there are prescription things to block uh, estrogen, like an astrozole, yeah. these kinds of things. But um, I don't know for sure, but I've heard that they can have some effects on the cardiovascular system mm -hmm. if in uh, high doses. You have to check on that. But, um, but apigenin is, uh, yeah, is actually quite quite potent uh, estrogen inhibitor. So if you ever want to go down the, the route of, of androgen hacking through um, through uh, kind of compounds that, that most people probably haven't heard of, um, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. That's for the follow-up podcast. Cool. Uh, when your book comes out, are you going to have anything like that in there? It's going to be... So the, the book is, is not going to include anything about supplementation. Yeah. I, I'm planning a second book. I think my agent and I are probably going to roll their eyes and like finish the first one. Um, I am working on a second book actually that's, that is really centered around um, supplementation and even some prescription uh, drugs. I'm working on it with a physician who has deep expertise in this and we've got large data sets. Mm -hmm. um, I think people need to know that, you know, people need to know what they can and should and shouldn't take given their individual needs. And um, YouTube is a wonderful place to get some of that information, but it's so clouded and complicated to extract. Um, so I, I will, I will be releasing something. Maybe it'll be more in like PDF handbook form, mm -hmm. but those are conversations I'm, I'm delighted to have at any Great. point. No. Yeah. I mean, because you know, I, you, you hit the nail on the head and I, I tell this people all the time, Let, let's look at your lifestyle factors first before anything. And then if you want to take supplements, let's get some blood work and see where you're at. Are you, are you deficient in certain things? So you're not just have you're not just not popping pills to pop pills. So um, I really recommend people to do that. If anybody's interested, uh, I did a podcast with Dr. Alex Podziotopoulos. So look at that. We, we talked about some of that. All right. So let's yeah, talk blood about work is really important. Very, I, you know, very. I, I, I've started, um, using inside tracker to, uh, to check my blood work. And it's, it's like, I just don't understand why people don't get blood work done. They've made it really easy. Now they come to your home and, yep. you know, and there are other, there are other companies too that I just mentioned that cause that happens to be the one that I use, but, um, it's so nice to have genetic and endocrine and metabolic data. So you can mm -hmm. kind of figure out what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Yeah. Actually inside tracker, I interviewed uh, Gil, the uh, CEO about that. So if you guys want to go back and look at that, that was, all, all about my inner age. I think I was like 11 years younger. So I was like, all right, I think the max Great. I could be, I could be 12 years younger. And I was really pissed off that I wasn't the, the max. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I, I, and I don't want to take us off track, but what's yeah. one thing to think about since you're, we're talking about androgens and, and hormones and we're talking about age, you know, I haven't asked um, David Sinclair about this, but I've been dying to ask him, you know, if you look at development and aging, 
the fastest period of aging that we go through at any point is puberty. And so a lot of people taking TRT or hormones that, that bring about more vitality, you're, you're getting a sort of second puberty, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on the levels and patterns. And so then we act surprised when, you know, people who are taking high levels of androgen are, are getting issues. And there's a lot of people try and protect, oh, you know, it's not, um, you know, that's, it actually helps the prostate. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. These kinds of things. But let's face it, the puberty is a rapid acceleration of aging. And so if you reintroduce another one of those through androgens or other hormone therapies, mm -hmm. that has to be balanced, I believe, by some other considerations. And so um, this is actually something that I, I'm trying to acquire data on. And I'm talking to colleagues who work on neuroendocrinology and puberty in particular and its relationship to aging. So wow. uh, avoiding TRT or taking TRT might be Im impactful for the aging process. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. I mean, when you put it like that in just kind of you know, layman's terms, it, it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, I mean, some people that get getting really exhausted and they feel like, or if they get like a prostate removed or something, then they got lower testosterone levels and, and taking that, I could see how it could help. But at the sure. same time, that, that's a very valid point about the acceleration in aging. Maybe there's something where you could do some sort of fasting protocol with that. So you're, you're vitality and, and longevity are, are not perfectly aligned, yeah. right? They're somewhat orthogonal to one another. And so I think that's important for, and David obviously is the expert on this. So yeah. uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> cool. All right. So let's work on some brain optimization. I know you're a busy guy, so I'll, I'll let you go here soon. But now viewing the sun early in the morning, two to 10 minutes with no sunglasses, um, overcast and um, horizon gauging, how is this going to help with brain optimization? Yeah. So it's very clear. All right. So without doing a total deep dive in circadian biology, every mm -hmm. cell in our um, in our body has a 24 hour clock that's regulated by genetic mechanisms and cellular mechanisms, every cell, right? There's no escaping this. And it's not a coincidence that the earth spins once about every 24 hours. Okay. So there's a strong evolutionary drive for us to obey circadian principles and biology in our behavior, in our sleep patterns, in our food intake, et cetera. So the main way in which our body and nerve cells and liver cells and gut cells know what time of day it is, is by the rising and setting of the sun. And it's not consciously perceived. It's not like you say, oh, there's the sun. I see the sun there it's setting. There's actually in a subconscious way, there's a specific set of neurons in the eye called melanopsin ganglion cells. These are cells that were discovered by a guy at Brown University named David Burson. These cells perceive the particular, they, they are activated by the particular wavelengths of light created by low solar angle when the sun is low in the sky and when it's setting again, low in the sky. So rising and setting the low solar angle when it's directly overhead, high solar angle. So what's interesting about this is that these cells when activated, send a nerve pulse to a set of neurons that sit right above the roof of your mouth called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Those cells secrete a bunch of things into your body and organize the timing of all the cellular processes, all the cellular processes in your body. Now, it's not like your liver cells need to be active at the same time as your heart cells. Your heart has to be active 20, around 24 hours around the clock. Mm -hmm. Your gut has to do its thing at a particular time. So think of your body kind of like a factory and every portion of that factory needs to do different things at different times a day. When you view the morning sun, it doesn't have to be right as the sun crosses the horizon. It can be, you know, I would say view sunlight 
within an hour of waking up, ideally within the first 15 to 30 minutes, but within the first hour of waking up. Ideally does, before does this work through a window or does it have to be? It works through a window. Okay. It is best if you can get outside. It's okay. best if you take some glasses off. You do not need direct light coming into your eyes. It can okay. be reflected off things. So if you're on a snow field in winter, you need, without sunglasses, probably only take 30 seconds to trigger activation of these cells. A densely overcast day in the depth of winter in Scandinavia, you might actually have to get an artificial light that mimics sunlight in order okay. to stimulate these high levels of activation. Um, a couple of things happen when you get morning light. And, and of course, never look at any light that's so painful, it's hard to look at. You can, <laughs> right. And we haven't solved the retinal regeneration thing yet. So yeah, that's not uh, a good don't idea. Do that. But on cloudy days, there are a lot of photons, a lot of light energy coming through, okay? It's, there's still a ton of light coming through compared to artificial light. Early in the day, you need a lot of bright light to trigger this mechanism. The irony is that in the middle of the night, you need very little light to trigger a separate mechanism that we'll talk about that's actually very bad. So when you view morning light in this way, from and if you wake up before the sun, turn on artificial lights, but when you view morning light in this way, it triggers activation of the cortisol pulse, which is a healthy pulse of a hormone that puts your system into a general state of focus and activation for the day. It also sets off a timer of about 16 hours that runs down. And after that 16 hours, the melatonin pulse starts coming up. So that melatonin is going to put you to sleep. The cortisol is going to help you move through your day. It's also going to protect you against infection and things like that. Not every infection, but it's going to enhance the immune system. A lot of people know this, but stress hormones in the short term actually in, enhance and invigorate the, the immune system. This makes sense. If you've ever been working, working, working really hard, and then you stop and rest, you get sick when you rest, not when you're in full states of getting after it, so yeah. to speak. Because in times of famine or times of lack of food, you need to be able to move and find things and support your children and do all these things. You couldn't afford to get sick. So right. the nervous system recruits the immune system. So if there were one practice that I could recommend to everybody, it would be get light in your eyes early in the day. Ideally, you get a little bit of light in your eyes in the evening as the sun is setting because the more cues that you can give your brain and body about time of day, where you are in that 24-hour spin of the earth, the better. But the, the, the one that's really important is that morning light viewing. Most days, if you miss a day, fine, but don't just dive into your screen first thing in the morning. Hmm. And people say, well, wait, but the screen and the, and the lights in my house are really bright. Ah, but early in the day, you need really bright light and there's nothing like photons from sunlight. In the nighttime, between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., it's a different story. The retina and these cells becomes very sensitive to light. And if you view light of any color that's too bright, not just blue light, or can people kind of demonize blue light? Mm -hmm. But it, bright light of any color, what ends up happening is there's a pro-depressive circuit that's triggered. There's a brain area called the habenula, H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A, that sends a signal to the dopamine system that suppresses levels of dopamine and now has been shown in three studies to lead to depressive symptoms, lower mood, and de defects in learning and memory in the days that follow. Now, if you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night or you flip on the lights once in the middle of the night, not a big deal. But if you're up in the middle of the night looking at screens or watching Netflix or looking at your phone, you are severely dampening levels of these neuro neurotransmitters and neuromodulators and hormones that make you feel good in the subsequent days. And it's a slow effect, but it's a real effect. So very, put simply, view light early in the day and throughout the day if you can. In the evening would be great too. And then avoid bright light 
in the evening and, in, and at night, and really from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. If you need lights, turn them down dim. Place them low in your physical environment. Overhead lights trigger these cells more than lights lower in the environment. Yeah. And some people really take this to the extreme and they turn their house into a cave or they put on red lights. I don't think you need that. Yeah. But if you're having sleep issues, this is probably the most important set of things that you can do to realign those cortisol and, and melatonin rhythms. And there are great papers. There was one published in Cell Reports. It's a great journal showing, oh, excuse me, Current Biology, also a great journal, but uh, same publishing house, Cell Press, but different journal, showing that students at University of Colorado who were really disrupted sleep rhythms, if they took them for a weekend and they got them away from devices and they just viewed the sunrise and sunset, yeah. it restored their cortisol and melatonin rhythms in the entire week that followed by just wow. two days of exposure. So this is a real thing. And look, dopamine, feelings of well-being, mood, affect, offsetting depression, or if in the case of viewing light at night, triggering depression, and this, is, this is serious stuff. And you look at our, the way we function nowadays, waking up, dim rooms, straight into our screens, avoiding, you know, you know, not avoiding electronics in the middle of the night. And we are, we are biasing ourselves for low mood, affect, and depression. And there again, I say, you know, like some people may genuinely need prescription antidepressants, but I think most people need to look at whether or not they're engaging in these very basal activities. Again, zero cost. Sun goes up, sun goes down everywhere on planet earth that I'm aware of. In Scandinavia, in the depths of winter, it might be a shorter period of time where it's up and down, but it's there. So, you know, that's, that's what I've got to say about that. All right. I, I think that's doable. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And that's probably why when people don't get sleep for a few days, it just kind of hits them later on. And, and that, that really makes a lot of sense. And, and then you can do all these other tactics, you know, do the yoga nidra and, and things like that. But uh, nice, tangible uh, things that people can do. All right. Last thing, and I'll let you go. Where do you feel like the future of neuroscience is heading? That's a great and fun question. So it's been so amazing to be part of this field of neuroscience because the, the modern age of neuroscience has really been in the last 20 years. We've just, it's very clear that we all have these brain circuits. That's not going to be like one brain area that causes fear or one brain area that causes creativity. It's circuits, just like he's on a piano, play them in different order with different intensities. You get different songs, play different brain areas in different order with different intensities. You get different states of mind and, and thinking patterns and, and so forth. We are getting to the point now as a field where we can so-called read from the brain very well, meaning we can monitor the activity of the neurons. We're kind of reading what's the activity patterns in these neural circuits. Yeah. fMRI, CAT scans, PET scans, elect dense electrode recordings, et cetera. The future of neuroscience is writing to the brain. It's taking those signature patterns, like the notes on a page that, that lead to a particular piece of music and saying, well, what would happen if we took those notes and, put, and tweaked them a little bit and put them back in? So we're now gonna start writing to the brain. And the ways to write to the brain require that we do you know, non-invasive tools, things like transcranial magnetic stimulation. You know, you can put a coil on somebody's head and block the activity of a particular brain area. It's actually pretty eerie. I've had this happen where <laughs> you're tapping your finger. Don't do this at home. This needs to be done in a lab, a, 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 the right lab. Yeah. You're tapping your finger and all of a sudden it's frozen and you're like, oh my goodness. Or they'll move that, that coil 
and you'll start tapping faster and you can't even control it. And you're like, wow, it's really coming from the brain. Um, and we knew that, but it's another thing to experience it. So wow. writing to the brain with precision, there are tools coming out like ultrasound, which will allow not just blocking brain areas through the skull, but activating specific brain areas. And then there are the things like, you know, like Neuralink and Elon Musk has been, you know, out there in the world talking about, um, you know, wiring electrodes through the back of maybe a little hole in the skull behind the ear to write, you know, and affect neurons in direct ways. I believe, and I have reason to believe that most of the writing to the brain that's going to be done is going to be done for clinical purposes first treatment of movement disorders like Parkinson's and, and Huntington's and things like that. Yeah. We are some time away from non-invasive devices for recreational use. Now there are things out there like halo mm -hmm. um, that are grounded in some good research science. I, I know those guys, I don't have any affiliation to them, but yeah. you know, putting, putting something on your head to stimulate neurons, it's grounded in the right logic. You know, the, the issue I have with it, not halo, but all devices like that is the spatial precision isn't that great. You're, you know, what if the headset is tilted this way or that way? You're talking about motor cortex, you know, it's this, you know, centimeter big and you know, what are you doing and is important. But look, um, people are exploring this, people are gonna continue to do it. So what does the future hold? Highly precise writing to the brain, not just reading from the brain. Mm -hmm. And the psychedelic movement, if there is such a thing, the kind of modern psychedelic movement, not the one in the 60s, but the one that was happening up until COVID, hit where everywhere in the media, it seemed like people were talking about psilocybin, you know, ayahuasca, LSD, microdosing, all that kind of stuff. That to me was saying, look, people are interested in how the brain can be modified. And they were looking to books like Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind and chemicals to, uh, to access those plasticity states. But what all that leaves aside is what exactly are the changes we're trying to create? Right. I'm not here to say that psychedelics are good or bad. I do think they need to be used in a clinical setting or, you know, hopefully, I mean, they're illegal for one, but, um, so, but even if people are, are, are using other routes to get to them, I think they need to ask themselves, what, what are you really trying to write into your brain? What are you trying to create? And I think the future of neuroscience is highly precise writing to the brain to create minds that function better and hopefully that are benevolent and treat each other better. I mean, I like the idea of in, of enhancing empathy. I like mm -hmm. the idea of improving our species in the right direction. As soon as you talk about writing to the brain, people start thinking about cyborgs and, and, uh, and, you know, rage and killing and destruction. And sure it could be deployed for that, but there are also a, a huge number of ways in which writing to the brain in these very precise ways could be deployed to help mental disease, to help, um, schizophrenia, uh, movement disorders, uh, bad thought patterns, trauma, and to create more benevolent beings. And if this sounds crazy, think about this. If every other aspect of our biology is limited, like I can't fly. So they invented these things called airplanes that allow us to travel yeah. further distances. Humans have always looked to technologies to take our biology where it couldn't go on its own. And this is going to happen. It's happening now. And I trust I really, I'm an optimist, but I trust that on average, it's going to be used to greatly evolve our species for good. I really believe that. And, and it's coming, so people should know that it's coming. <laughs> well, I would hope so. I'd hope we can all be more empathetic 
Um, we've got a lot of assholes in this world, so if we can start understanding <laughs> it. Well put. You yeah. know, if, if we can start understanding each other and, you know, it's like, is it a six or a nine? It's, it's all about perspective. So if, if we just understand each other a little bit more and we can walk around that table and we can turn that number a little bit, then we're just gonna be much better off. We can still have our own opinions about things, but I just think that the trolling community and all that sort of stuff, I just think we should be nicer, we need to be more kind. So just having a little bit of extra empathy. So if that's, you know, some sort of rewiring or writing the brain, like absolutely, I'm all for it. All right, Professor, Dr. Andrew Huberman, uh, Stanford, small, small school, nobody's ever heard of it. Uh, appreciate you for coming on and where can everybody find you? Um, well, if people want to, learn about neuroscience. Um, I teach neuroscience on Instagram, Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. Um, I do doing a little series right now on neuroplasticity, but I touched on a number of different topics in some short to not so short videos, you know, maybe 10 minutes, the longest, maybe somewhere <laughs> yeah. as short as one minute. As you notice, I'm not good at being very concise, but I try, I strive for thoroughness, yeah. um, if nothing else. And if people want to read more about the science my lab does, we have a Huberman Lab dot com website okay. where the papers are available for download and there's some press links to some more in-depth kind of nitty-gritty and um in general you know i'll just mention we do run studies uh, now out there in the general public where people are doing respiration exercises that we give them we're monitoring their sleep and other features of their physiology like heart rate variability uh with whoop bands and other similar technology um so if people uh, send me a dm and please just put breath work and your email um, then I'll find it. If there's a long text there, I'll miss it, yeah. uh, frankly. But the cool thing is, is we, we actually pay our subjects. So uh, we pay you um, oh, nice. or you get and or you get to keep a valuable piece of tech. Um, so those right now, the current study is closed, but we will be opening more in the future. And um, lastly, I, I just want to thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here. I follow your work. I'm a big fan. I need to get some advice on workouts because I, I, I got you, slipping. man. I got you. Um, I know. Definitely. I've been slipping. I need to, I've, I've, I'm doing a bit here and there, but I've, I've gotten out of shape in these last couple of months. Um, and so it's time to get back into full action. So, but thank you for having me on. Of course. I really appreciate you and what you do. Hey man, strong body, strong mind, vice versa. We can't have one without the other. So uh, truly appreciate it. This is another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. I'm Joey Thurman. Don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Cheers. Mm -hmm.